Hello, I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and this is Open Book, where I talk with some of the brightest minds out there about everything surrounding the written word, from authors and historians to figures in entertainment, neuroscientists, political activists, and of course, Wall Street. Sorry, I can't resist. Before we get into today's episode, if you haven't already, please hit follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. We all love a review, even the bad ones. I want to hear the parts you're enjoying or how we can do better. You know, I can roll with the punches, so let me know. Anyways, let's get to it. A glass of Don Julio on the rocks, a big rock, I might add, and a slice of orange. Imagine that in one hand and a Daniel Silva thriller in the other. That's my idea of a perfect summer night. I have devoured all of Daniel's books over the years, and I've even been in the acknowledgments of a few of them, which I'm very happy about. But I have to say, his most recent thriller, The Collector, may be his best yet. It's a masterpiece. With too many New York Times bestsellers for me to mention, Daniel is one of our great American novelists. I'm lucky enough to call him a friend, and I couldn't be more excited to welcome him to today's open book. So joining us now on Open Book is Daniel Silva, a best-selling author, a journalist, Gabriel Alon himself, if I might add. I do think that that's your doppelganger. And out now with a best-selling book called The Collector, I believe the 23rd of the Gabriel Alon series, although I've also read The uh, Unlikely Spy and all the other stuff that you've written. An amazing friend, too, by the way. And uh, and so I'm, I'm always very grateful for our conversations. I want to tell you this, and I know other people feel this way, and I, I've shared your book with so many of my friends, and uh, one of uh, President Bush's chiefs of staff said, I, I'm so jealous that you're going to be interviewing Daniel, uh, who's read every one of your books. But my cabal of friends say the favorite part of their summer is the delivery or the purchase of your book, okay, because then to them, the summer has started. They have a spy thriller in their hands. Start with the creation, okay? I know you're already working on your, your next book. So start with the creation of the ideas, the formation, and how do you get so canny about predicting the future, Daniel? Well, let's, let's take the last part first. You, you know, I think that uh, the cardinal sin of any uh, international thriller would be to be behind the curve. And so it, it forces me to try to imagine the world that I'm going to be publishing into a year from, from when I, I begin to write. So I, I have to sort of think like an intelligence officer. You know, an intelligence officer doesn't tell his elected leader what happened yesterday. I mean, he does, but every once in a while. But what he, what you pay your intelligence services to do is to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen next week, or one year from now, or 10 years from now. And you have to sort of look over the horizon, look around the corner, anticipate. And so that's what I try to do. Like, you know, the first question I ask myself if, if I'm writing something that's, you know, timely and close to the edge as this one is, is, is you know, what's, what, what, uh, environment am I going to be publishing into? What is the world going to look like? What's going to be going on? What's going to be in the headlines uh, that summer? And, you know, this one is really right on the edge. Now, it is set last autumn, but, you know, it, it, it is right up to the minute in terms of what's going on in, in Ukraine. And, you know, one of the things, most interesting thing that's happened along the way is that you know, I, I was talking to my sources and they include 
supreme commanders of NATO and uh, commander of, of all ground forces, NATO, former CIA director, State Department people. And one of the first questions each of them asked me is, well, when are you going to publish this book? Because what you are talking about might well happen before um, you publish. And, um, you know, there is an element of internal opposition to uh, yeah. the unnamed uh, Vladimir Putin in the novel. And when uh, Fregosian was doing his brief uprising a, a couple of weeks ago, heading up the road toward Moscow, I was like, oh, gosh. Well, this I mean, and you're right, you're right for, there. For I... Yeah. So but in terms of the idea generation, um, as when I get a, a, the current book in hand, as I like to describe it, when I enter clear air and I see how, how I'm going to finish it, um, you know, usually the next one starts to rise to the surface. What I like to do is is to get writing as quickly as possible because I have I struggle with letting go of a manuscript. It's very hard to let go at the end, um, and the, really the only way that I can move on, stop second guessing myself, stop thinking about uh, the novel that I just finished, is to start the next one. And so I finished this book, the the final copy edits yep. on May 29th, something like that. And I, I signed my name 12,000 times uh, for signed editions. I got that out of the way and started working on the new book. So I was able to, to write four awesome. or 5,000 words of the new book, a couple of chapters before I started the publicity for this one. Um, and so it starts with the smallest idea and it starts with it assembling the characters. Well, which characters from my, from my family of characters am I going to use for this one? What's the, what's the broad setting? What's the general intent? Do I have a do I have a title for it or a theme for it? And if you think of the book as an arc like this, if I can see about that much, if I can just see enough those eight to ten chapters just to get going, um, I'm pretty comfortable starting at that point. I do not know everything. Um, I do not need to know everything that's going to happen. I don't want to know everything that's going to happen. I want to go on the journey at that side of my characters. And this book, I have to say. I, I didn't know until as I was writing the climax, I really didn't quite know who was going to, to survive the ending of this one in, until I actually wrote it. Um, it was I kept myself in suspense. I well, didn't quite I mean, know what I you, yeah, I, I got to go back for a second, uh, Daniel. So, so, Daniel, you're you're very good at this. You write about the near future. Then the future happens. Uh, thankfully, and especially for my friend Franco, the owner of Cafe Milano, that was averted. Can I t tell you the funniest thing about Cafe Milano? Every time we go there, the first question that Laurent asks us, the, the, the very famous maitre d' of Cafe Milano, is, do, would we like to sit in the blast zone or not in the blast zone? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. And so for my viewers and listeners, what Daniel's referring to is there's there's a scene in uh, in, in one of the Elan books where the, there's a bomb that goes off. A terrorist has planted a bomb. Ca Cafe Milano is one of the more Tony restaurants in D.C., and it's well visited by the nation's leaders, cabinet members, presidents, etc. Cetera. Bomb goes off in the restaurant, and obviously people are hurt. Gabriel Alon himself is wounded in that attack. And then coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, because this is part of your genius, uh, we have a situation where a terrorist, I think it was an Iranian terrorist, was about to blow up 
the restaurant and it was averted. And so some people have said to me that a lot of people in the intelligence uh, arena are reading your books and uh, you you were, were predicting something that was about to happen. And, and in, in a weird way, you possibly helped them prevent it from happening. But now we got this unique situation. I don't want to give up this book of The Collector. I thought it was a virtuoso of yours. I thought it was a total masterpiece. I don't want to give up the book, but there is a plot line that I do want to discuss without giving up too much detail. If there was a bomb to go off in the Ukraine, a nuclear bomb, of course, the Russians would want that to appear like a false flag situation, that it wasn't in fact them. And so they would have to find fissile material from another part of the world uh, that couldn't be traced back to them. And and therefore, that's part of the plot line uh, that Gabriel and his cohorts are working on. One, had you come up with that plot line, give us a little bit of a, of, of, let us get into your inner sanctum, if you don't mind, and tell us about how your characters are evolving over the course of this series. Well, let's go to the plot line first. You remember last October, November, we became alarmed, and I think that's the right word, alarmed by the kinds of statements that Putin was making, not only Putin, but the people around him and his propagandists on Russian television. I mean, daily warnings that, that, that Russia was going to use nuclear weapons if it, it felt it needed to. Uh, it was just a drumbeat of nuclear, very loose nuclear talk coming out of, of Moscow. But I think more alarmingly, we were picking up signs that the Russians were really casting about for an excuse, a pretext to use nuclear weapons, and that they were trying to perhaps create a dirty bomb, not a actual detonate a whole bomb, but a dirty bomb, a radiological dispersion device, and that they were looking for perhaps material from a Ukrainian uh, nuclear power plant or something that they could then create, you know, have a dirty bomb attack, then use that as a pretext to launch their own tactical weapons. And, and we, we were so alarmed by this that, that President Biden took the extraordinary step. And I don't think we can understate how it can extraordinary it was, of publicly warning Vladimir Putin, do not use nuclear weapons or a dirty bomb in, in Ukraine, that it will be catastrophic. You know, there's a lot of happy talk during that period from people, well, he, he's a rational actor. He would never do it. Um, this is, you know, gamesmanship on his part. But behind the scenes at the White House, CIA, the Pentagon, we were tabletopping this, um, Anthony, we were worried that something was going to happen. So my novel is set during that period. It is sort of an alternative history, if you will, of that, a hidden alternative history of that period. And um, yeah, for, for, the, for a dirty bomb or a false flag nuclear attack to have any, and I stress that word, any credibility, the, the fissile material could not come from, from Russia's nuclear stockpile because we could, in, in very short order, by testing the radiological fallout, we can determine the provenance of that material. So that's that's what the plot is about in a nutshell. Does your wife, Jamie, ever get jealous of all these beautiful women that you create in these novels? I mean, we're, we're now dealing no, with Ingrid Johansson. No, no. She's okay with it, right? I love uh, pairing Gabriel 
with a good commercial, beautiful woman at his side. And I think that the, the character that I created in this novel is one of my favorites that I've done in a very long time. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I mean, this, she is by far for me the most interesting, I don't want to say the, the, the Black Widow, the all the different, I don't want to say the most, she's at the top yeah. of the list because she's got everything going on, including the uh, environmentalism. So I'm a criminal, but I'm also an environmental. I'm a criminal environmentalist, which I find to be literally very, very. She enjoyable. was going to be paired with a um, oil company executive, and so, you know, literature is and 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 tension requires conflict. You know, um, and so we have a a a radical environmentalist paired with an oil executive to try to save the world, and um, so I, so that's I gave that to her character for that reason. But she was a delight to work with. There are a couple of scenes in the novel um, with some of the dialogue and exchanges and banter between Gabriel and, and Ingrid Johansson. I feel some of the, um, some of the best stuff I've ever written. I, so for the yeah. minute she came uh, into the novel, she just sort of jumped off the page. Um, I can't wait to use her again. Ingrid survives the climax of the book. Yeah. The, the, the problem with your novels, unfortunately, is I savor them. And so I don't really want to finish them. You know, I find myself if I'm in a if I'm in a quiet place, I want to read them, but I don't want to read them. If I'm not in a quiet place. But when I when I finished this novel, I was like, OK, I got to wait another 11, 12 months for the next one. But let me ask you this, because we're both lovers of books. We're both bibliophiles. You have a book collector in the book, The Collector. You pick three books, The Great Gatsby, or as you call it, Gatsby. The Beautiful and the Dam. Those are both written by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And then Thomas Mann is in the book, The Death of Venice. And so why those three books? Or were those just random books out of your brain? Or were there symbolism in those three books as it related to well, this book? Anyone who's read my book, my books, I should say, knows that they have all sorts of Gatsby illusions all through them. I'm a, I'm a F. Scott Fitzgerald devotee. He's yep. and a huge influence on my on my writing and my style. I mean, I cannot write like F. Scott Fitzgerald, obviously, but he's a, I just adore Fitzgerald. Beautiful uh, and damned. I mean, there's obvious allusions in the novel uh, to that, that choice. Well, G- Gabriel says more than once, which one are you? Are you the beautiful or which are you the are damned? You damned? Because of what you have done. Um, and the, the book Compromat, Russia's use of Compromat to compromise and turn people into from, you know, law abiding, decent people into their assets. How ruthlessly they, they wield Compromat, how the entire systema, as they call it in Russia, is based on Compromat. That ever, anyone who is in the inner circle or making money uh, uh, in Russia is compromised in, in, in a very real sense by just by their participation in the system. And so Compromat is, is, is very um very much at the forefront of the novel and a, ma- a major character in the novel an oil company executive is completely compromised by the Russians and, and does uh, Putin's bidding. You know, the uh, Fitzgerald references, I, I may have told you this, I grew up in the town of Port Washington uh, where Fitzgerald at the, at the tip of the town is what he, he, know, he, he said was East Egg. It's Sands Point and West Egg was King's Point. And so uh, we were forced very early in our lives to read Fitzgerald's works because he was a celebrated figure in our town. He said something I want you to react to. He said that there are no second acts in American life. Did he get that right, Daniel? No. You know, <laughs> Donald Trump is on about his 18th act or something like that. Um, I think that right, you do, exactly. 
if if you have a huge fall, it's it's difficult to come back from that. I, I would think in American life, but um, look, we're a, a, a forgiving country. I, I think still. I hope he wrote Gatsby. It took him a very long time uh, to get tender as the, as the night finished. I, I mean, it's a combination of about two or three manuscripts. Um, he had all kinds of false starts. He was struggling with drinking, and then he went sort of downhill from there and it ended up out in Hollywood. Didn't have the career that he should have had. And maybe he was, in, in a weird way, foretelling his own future. Yeah, no, it's 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 an interesting thing because I often think about it. I'm I'm on my ninth act myself, Daniel. I'm I'm I'm, I'm talking to you on the uh, anniversary of my White House press conference. Okay, and so eleven short days later, I was blown from the White House. But uh, yeah, as I tell people, life goes on. You don't have to take yourself that seriously. But I just find Fitzgerald for me, like for you, is a very compelling novelist, and he was in touch with a lot of our feelings and emotions. And I think you do that. I think you do that beautifully. I mean, you explain all of our contradictions. Uh, so let's talk about this uh, philosopher king, Gabriel Alon. I, I heard the interview with you and George Stephanopoulos where you talked about uh, Alon being a cold figure in the beginning, and now he's more likable to you. He seems like he's become more of a uh, philosopher king. He's more accepting of human frailty. You know, my grandmother had one of the best lines that I always share with people, the best among us choose not to judge human frailty so harshly. It was sort of a, you know, she was very Roman Catholic and her her attitude was, we're all frail. Let's take it easy on each other, you know, and uh, not stand on ceremony. So tell me about your friend, Gabriel Alon. How has he evolved? And do I have it right? Has he become more of a philosopher? He's more like Solomon now. He has, he has the slingshot of David, but he talks more like Solomon yeah. now. I don't know if you ever saw the documentary, The Gatekeepers. It was about um, the recent uh, Shinbet. Yes, uh, it was on show. It was on yes. Showtime. Yep. And um, I forget which one it was, but he remarked that all of us become liberals in the end, meaning all of us who fight this secret war to to defend Israel in this in this neighborhood, and who sometimes do operations and, you know, assassinations and targeted killings and who are on the front lines of this sometimes very dirty war. That in the end, we, they all become quite liberal in their approach and they want to have, um, do whatever they can to end this, this conflict and make peace in reasonable terms, obviously. Um, and Gabriel certainly fell into that camp quite early. I mean, he is by no means an extremist or anything like what it has happened is that he's just become, I've lightened the series, I've lightened the tone. Um, placing him in Venice gives it a, just a wonderful, you know, look and feel and taste and smell to it. The food, the wine, the wine bars where they stop in the afternoon and have a little chichetti. It's just a delight to, to set the series there, to base the character there, I guess is how I would describe it. He is hysterically funny. Um, he is quite humorous. I mean, when you when you read the dialogue, every piece of dialogue, everything he said is just slightly off. You know, he never responds directly to some of them. It's quite funny. It's a thriller. It is at the edge end of it. It is edge of your seat thriller. But along the way, 
um, it made me laugh out loud. Some of the responses I got from my broader reading community included lines like snorted coffee out my nose at this line and things like that. It's got a nice touch to it. And, and one of the things that Gabriel has done, he has collected villainous characters along the way and turned them into protagonists. That's the magic of the series. People who tried to kill him are now his friends. Thieves, criminals, art thieves, assassins. They are his friends and associates, um, and and I write them. I write them in that way, and that's the magic of the series. Yeah, I mean, and but that but that's also the, the there's a metaphor for human nature. There's a metaphor for our relationships. Uh, you know, eighty short years ago, we were adversaries with Germany and Japan. They're our greatest allies today. We have this sort of thing going on in our lives as human beings. Let's go to Russia for a second. I want to get your thoughts on Russia, today's Russia. And, uh, you know, somebody said to me, student of Russian literature, that the pain comes from the dislocation and the geography. And I just want to get you to react to this. What do they mean by the pain? All that pain in Russian literature, all the struggle of the Russian people, they're not quite in Europe. They're not quite in Asia. And so they always feel left out or as outsiders. And so they vacillate from morose insecurity to great overconfidence and arrogance. Uh, What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I mean, if if you start from the climate alone, okay? Yep. A brief hot summer, a brief period where we're looking back in, in history, of course, where you would have fresh vegetables and, and, and um, I mean, it's, it's a hard, hard land. And then, of course, it was cut off from Europe and did not experience the Enlightenment, um, which therefore there did not experience, you know, an early uh, exposure to democracy. Um, I hate generalizations and, and, and we're saying, you know, that, that Russians are, are by nature, um, you know, patriarchal society. But I'm not sure that, that um, democracy, a true democracy, is, is it really a natural fit for the, for the country? It's, it's hate, I hate to say that. And the criminality that goes on in, inside Russia today, as you know, is just astonishing. It's a criminal state. It's a, it's a, it's a mafia state uh, run by the, the boss of bosses, but the, the gangs uh, underneath him and everything. It is, it's, it's a mess. Um, and at the same time, the level of brilliance, the music, the literature, it's a strange combination of incredible beauty and pain and sadness and unfortunately, just failure. They just can't get there. Yeah. One of the richest countries in the world, though, right, Daniel? I mean, it's got all- it's natural resources. Yeah. And that's part of the problem um, that Putin is, is just become, you know, a, the world's gas station and they're going to mine and, and, and hack down their forests. And that, that's going to be their economy. I am alarmed by it. There was a great map that was on Farid's show the other day, Farid Zakaria, uh, GPS. It, it put the countries in red that are still trading with Russia. And it's all of Africa. It's a huge section of Central Asia. And I was wondering, if, if, get, get your thoughts on this. Are we, because of this war, reordering the global economy in any way? 
Yeah, and there's no question. I mean, we we the the great irony of what we did there is we've actually hurt ourselves, and we've also uh, we've repositioned the U.S. dollar. You, know, you have to be very very careful. Uh, we benefit from the dollar being the reserve currency, uh, but we made a decision 22 years ago to weaponize the dollar. And you know, there's a great book called Treasury Wars, Daniel, where we use the dollar as a mechanism for sanctions, uh, countries that we like on the SWIFT system, the bank international banking system, countries that we dislike, we take these punitive measures towards. It's been a very effective political tool. And here's the problem with that tool, Daniel, uh, our politicians don't have to have any recourse. So our politicians no longer want to make decisions, right? They they cede war powers to the president. The Congress doesn't like voting on those things. Um, and so this is a mechanism by the administrative state where we can do things that politicians are no longer comfortable doing. You know, uh, we, we, we're watching the movie Oppenheimer this summer. And of course, Harry Truman has to make this decision to detonate literal death, create the sun on earth uh, to wipe out 220,000 people. He makes that decision. We can debate that decision today, but he's making decisions. Our politicians are not doing that anymore. And so this is creating some havoc. And uh, you you know this intuitively. Anytime we make a decision like that, we're creating unnatural alliances. Uh, The Chinese and the Russians have a 1,600-mile border dispute, okay? The, the the Chinese still believe that there's a large swath of Siberia, which was taken from them by the Russian Empire in the 1630s, that belongs to them. And so these have been antagonists for several centuries. And yet, because of the decisions by the United States, we've put them into an alliance with each other. And so you know, we have to be careful about that. That's one of the things I did learn in my 11-day ill-fated stint. Any decision that's being made by the president uh, comes with great ramifications. We, we all view in the U.S. the bin Laden raid being a successful raid, but there were ramifications, okay? We upset our relationship with Pakistan. We invaded a sovereign nation. We set an alarm bell off all over the Middle East. All those uh, tyrannies there were super worried about potential invasions, but they were also worried about the conservatives uh, saying, okay, you have to reject American policy and break your treaties with America. If you don't, they're coming for you or they're coming for our country too. So there was lots of negative ramifications that came out of that, which you and I both know. But I want to I want to get your opinion of this. So is there an optimistic outcome for the Ukrainian war? Is there an optimistic outcome for the Russians? Is uh, is is this something that you and I, for our lifetimes, we're going to be plagued with this level of Cold War, hot war antagonism with the Russian people, many of which you and I both know, like you said, are kind people. I mean, we we both know many Russians that we have a tremendous amount of respect for. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, you know, one of the things that I talk about in the, in the novel is what happens when Russia experiences a disastrous war or foreign policy adventure. Russo-Japanese War led to the first uh, Russian Revolution of 1905. Collapse of the Russian army in World War I led to the Russian Revolution of 1917 and the Bolsheviks and the, and the murder of the Tsar and his family. Uh, misadventure in Afghanistan led to the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, Vladimir Putin knows his Russian history. He knows that if, that if things go much worse, I, I mean, you know, the percentage is three quarters of the Russian military inside Ukraine right now or something insane like that. Is it 200,000 casualties or 300,000 casualties? The, the possibility of, of the fall of Putinism um, and, and regime change should should not be off the table. And that, that is what I hope we're trying to achieve, to be honest with you. That's what I would be thinking about. And, um, I agree with Ann Applebaum. You know, a lot of people are worried about, well, is the next person who takes over going to be worse than Putin? And Applebaum's thesis is no one is worse than Putin because he knows how to use the, the, operate the levers of power so effectively. Um, so I would like to see uh, this end with the, with the end of Putinism. And what I'd really like to see is his but in the dock at, at the Hague, but I'm, I think that's probably too much to hope for. Yeah, no, listen, yeah, hey, listen, I, I, I want to be optimistic, but I am I, a uh, Russian. I am a Russian dissident. I, I'm going to say that I am. I am a Russian dissident. I am a Russian pro-democracy activist. People always ask me, "Are you anti-Russian?" No, I am pro-Russian. I am for the Russian people. I am. I would be on on the front lines in in, in Russia and uh, against Putin. I have tried to, in all of the works, uh, convey that um, I'm a pro-democracy advocate. I'm a, I'm a human rights activist. Um, I want um, the Russian people to have democracy. We've got to get rid of this guy. I hope that, I, I, maybe I'm crazy. I hope that is our unspoken policy goal, is this, to use this as an opportunity to move Putin off the stage. Well, well, we were we were talking about Donald Trump in passing, but that's something that both of us would have to worry about. Yeah, I was, I was going to say that, that, you know, Donald Trump's repeated statement that he can end the war on day one of his of the second term. Well, what is it? What would that look like? You know, locking in the gains of, of Crimea and, and, and uh, eastern Ukraine, just go ahead and hand those over to the Russians. Um, you can be sure that Vladimir Putin is... Um, trying to hang on in hopes that Donald Trump gets back into office. And we should probably expect a great deal of Russian intervention in the next uh, in the next election. Yeah, well, I mean, this, it would be a great tragedy for us, obviously, if we had that that that, that situation unfold. Uh, and it would be a challenge to Western democracy. So, you know, the, 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 the one thing I always worry about with these criminal indictments with Donald Trump is that 
prison is very empowering for political figures. You know, we know that, right? I mean, we know good examples and bad examples. Letters from the Birmingham jail by Martin Luther King Jr. would obviously be a good example. <laughs> we should um, not expect, we should not expect that. No, but we have, we have bad examples. Look, another example. Yeah, no, the Adolf Hitler in, yeah, okay. in you, 1924. You said, you said it, I didn't mind. Yeah, exactly. No, we, we, we have good and bad examples of political imprisonment. But what we do know about political imprisonment is that it does lead to a galvanization of those those groups. Uh, whoever is supporting the good or bad political figure seems to galvanize around them. So we, we have to be worried about Nelson that. Nelson Mandela is the, is the one that, the, it's apart yes. from, from uh, Dr. King, but Nelson Mandela and the time he spent in Rockwell. Yeah, 27 years in prison. And uh, he comes out to lead the country and do his best to unify that country. Uh, of course, you write about South Africa in your book. We'll leave that plot line uh, threaded there, Daniel. I want to I want to ask you this because I've always I mean I've always been dying to ask you this, so I might as well ask you this on our podcast. When you think about the world and you know the spy craft and you know the seam between good and evil in the world and you know the complexity, are you an optimist or a pessimist, a realist? How would you describe yourself, and how do you think about the future of the world? I, we were talking about the climate a moment ago with, with, with my character. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm alarmed by this summer. So I know we're having a, a, a sharp fluctuation because of um, the El Nino cycle. But it was 152 degrees apparent temperature, not actual temperature in Tehran the other day. 152 degrees. That's, we cannot, humans cannot live in, in that kind of climate. We are about to have a section of the earth and the, you know, Pakistan, parts of India, uh, that region that, that's going to back uh, uh, Iraq, it's going to be uninhabitable pretty soon, uh, at, at least for large portions of the year. We're going to have millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people on the move pretty soon. We are losing cropland around the world to, to climate change. When you, when you see, um, I'm very worried about the, 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 the unraveling of, of democracy and democratic norms. I worry about competition for scarcity of, of resources, water, I mean, for one. I think the world's going to be, it's going to be, be more chaotic uh, than it is even right now. That's what I would say. You know, I try to per- portray, my, you know, I, my characters are professional spies and intelligence officers, and they're supposed to make these kinds of ruthless, hard decisions. I'm, I, but I'm also, um, uh, as I said before, I, I, I believe in human rights and, and um, I, I'm personally, you know, left of center. And I, I worry about the, the, the world that we are on, on course for. Spies and intelligence officers have to prepare their countries and their leaders for the, the decisions that they're going to have to make. And we in the Northern Hemisphere are, are going to face some difficult decisions because of them. And Israel, I mean, Gabriel lives in Venice now, but... My goodness, it, it was, you know, I guess that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu had to go into the hospital with a little bit of heat exhaustion or dehydration. It's Israel's yeah. on fire uh, with, with the temperature. Yeah. Um, the Mediterranean, you know, this is going to create a lot of instability, I'm afraid. 
Well, I mean, I want to throw one more thing at you. I'll let you go in a second. But uh, we both know what Dunbar's number is. It's why uh, we have a difficulty maintaining more than 150 relationships. And the the irony of our evolution is uh, those relationships got us here. You know, we were able to have these nice small villages and the villages turned into city states. And then we had the administration of larger entities. But unfortunately, we can only really relate to about 150 people, at least according to Dunbar. So when you have a plastic cup or you have a plastic bottle and you're discarding it, you're not thinking about the 8 billion people and the impact that we're holistically having on each other. So is this feature of our evolution, which got us to where we are today, preventing us from dealing with the problems that we have? Look, I mean, mean, the statement that came out from from China on on climate was very revelatory in in my opinion. I mean, I've are they at 1.2 or I can't remember what their, their current population is. Okay. We have these people, they need electricity for this. We are not, you know, going to make any drastic changes um, to our, our, our power grid and power consumption anytime soon. This is not going to be our decision. So, you know, I, I, I am worried um, that, that there's just going to be, they're trying to weave together an international coalition to take this on. Uh, is is going to be very difficult. We're talking about the heat. We need air conditioning. People aren't going to be able to survive without air conditioning. We need electricity to power the air conditioners. We're not going to be able to marshal a, a broad coalition to get this done. It's going to fall on individuals and making decisions. That's what I'm. That's where I'm at on this. Um, and no, it's interesting. And, and we have to, you know, try to try to get as much into in. We're going to have great electric cars soon. You know, try to drive less, try to use less, try not to try to, you know, do everything you can with recycling. Do your bit. Um, We're all going to be in this together. By the way, we've gone from climate, uh, climate change. We're now in the climate crisis. And and when we get to 1.5, which we're we're going to just blow past that 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial, we're going to go to a climate apocalypse in right. Well, let's leave on an up note. <laughs> yeah, no, no, but I think it's important. I think it's important to at least discuss it because, you know, we we have climate declinists, if you will. They believe they don't believe in the climate change that's happening. We it's, it's irrefutable. I mean, if you look at the data, you look at the information and you look at the admission, it's irrefutable. But I guess so. the reason I'm asking you these questions is that you're good at predicting things. Isn't there, isn't there a lot of money to be made in, in, in renewables and and yeah, well, I think that's ultimately exactly. that's ultimately going to be the ticket. You know, I uh, I've made investments uh, on the blockchain uh, where you know, you're literally paying people to pick up plastic. Right. Okay, and so you have companies that are producing plastic, like Coca Cola. They'll drop ship money into companies, which will incentivize the youth of the world to get the plastic out of the ocean, to get the plastic off of the. Uh, off of the we're, we're 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 just in that vexing dilemma that you're describing because you need the air conditioning the air conditioning emits carbon so you're cooling off the inside while you're heating out heating up the outside it, it actually it, it um well, you you emit carbon um by you know producing the electricity but you're you're not actually you're you're taking the heat from inside the building and sticking it out on the street you, every, anyone who's walked along a New York street past an air conditioner knows you get that little blast of, of warm air, right? Um, so you're making it actually hotter outside. So it's, it's, it, is, it is 
not a solution by any means, um, but it does keep right. people safe. Um, no, 100 percent. So we'll ha- we'll have to see how this happens. So all right, so we're at the point in the podcast where I'm going to read you five words, okay, and then you react to these five okay. words. You can give me a sentence, a word, a paragraph. So let's start with the collector. Well, I will say that it, um, it's a title that I wanted to use for a very long time. And I stayed away from it out of respect for uh, John Fowles' book. And the way I, I just had to use it and the way I dealt with it is the one of the uh, quotes in the, in the uh, epigraph of the novel it, it is a, just a, a perfect, it fits perfectly into the novel. So I, I gave a tip of the hat to one of my literary heroes, John Fowles, and I stole his great title. Okay. Uh, America. America. Um, incredibly blessed land with incredible people. Let's just take a deep breath. Let's stop this culture war. Let's stop this, this um, war of, of whipping up uh, anger. Let's, let's, let's heal this, our, our divisions. We are a great people. Russia. Find a way um, to extract yourself as quickly and as painlessly as possible from this situation and, and, and become, become a decent country. Gabriel Alon. One of my best friends. Um, I love every minute I spend with him. Um, I feel so blessed that I had the inspiration to create him. And I got a few more left in me. Daniel Silva. I, I guess that I, I, I can see that career is, is heading towards an end at some point. Um, I feel like I am so blessed and so lucky in that I was able to do what I always wanted to do from the time I was a young. Well, listen, I think your best years are ahead of you. You got to think like, you've got your best years ahead of you, you know, uh, but, uh, Listen, it's a phenomenal book. I'm looking forward to the next one already. Uh, with great sadness, I finished this book two days ago. I say with great sadness because uh, I now have to wait 12 months for the next one. Uh, but the title of the book is The Collector by Daniel Silva. And it's just another amazing piece of literature. There's so much to learn from your writing and from your personal thoughts. So so thank you today for joining us on Open Book. Thank you so much for having me. What a, what a wonderful interview. So Daniel is one of the greats. I have to confess, it isn't a true summer for me until I am handed the hardcover of a Gabriel Alon book. And the collector has everything. It's geopolitics. It's art collecting. It's what happens to real spies in real situations. And if you read the book without giving too much away, there's some predictions about the future. Now, you will recall that Daniel, a couple of years ago, blew up a very Tony Cafe Milano in Washington, D.C. And of course, people thought that was outrageous until about six months after that book came out, they caught somebody trying to do that very same thing. So either he's predicting the future or he's helped writing the future, uh, but he's absolutely a brilliant novelist. And I've learned so much from him about life, travel, spycraft, and it's a real page turn, a real page thriller. So grab your tequila, your coffee, your wine, your tea, uh, but whatever you fancy, get it in one hand and get Daniel's great book in the other. Uh, and that makes for a perfect summer evening, summer morning, I might say. And by the way, if you start reading the book, you'll be like me. You'll be turning pages until late, late, late in the evenings. 
Okay, so so this week on my podcast, I had Daniel Silva, okay, who's an award-winning spy novelist, and you're a fan of thrillers, right, Ma? You like some? What 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 books do you like to read the most, Ma? I find the human mind very interesting. Maybe I'm nuts, but I find I I like to read about it. Okay, so. Let me ask you this, Ma. I've been reading this man's books for the last 20 years, and he's actually put me in his books uh, because I've helped him with some of the plot lines. You think I could be a good spy, Ma? You think I would make a good spy? Absolutely. Anthony, you think that I'm blowing smoke up you, but I'm not. You have a magical brain, which I really believe took after my father. It sounds a very conceited thing, but my father was genius level, and okay. I think you have that. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that you would make a very good spy, but I wouldn't want you to be a spy because it's a dangerous, a dangerous thing to be a spy. Mm-hmm. Do you like the James Bond movies, Ma, or not really? Not really. No. Okay. Tell mm-hmm. me why. Because they're fake. Too fake, right? There's too much. Too shit. fake. Yeah. Okay. I like the real world things, like yeah, you know, like more realistic movies. Okay, so you would like Mr. Silva's books because they're very realistic. Okay, let me ask you this: Could you be a spy, Ma? Could you be inconspicuous, or you're running your mouth too much all day in, in the town of Port Washington? What do you think? <laughs> I think that uh, if I was, you know, not four feet eleven, a statue that was tougher. And not so, I have like a mellow personality, usually, unless someone hurts me, then I'd be tyrant. But it takes me a while to get there. And I think that I would be very caring to the people. I, I can't say I would be a spy. I would be very caring. I, could, I don't think I could be a, a good spy. No, I don't think you could be a good spy. No, I don't think you could be a good spy because you blah, blah, blah all day long. You were, you're like, <laughs> you're like Siri before there was Siri or Alexa before there was Alexa. You just have to ask you who's having the affairs in Port Washington, you know, every detail. Am I wrong? Um, without saying my experience, sometimes there was a very bad person in my life who I couldn't diagnose, and it took me years to figure it out. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a good spy. All right. I don't think I'm All a right. good spy. All right. Well, we know you're not a good spy, but you you definitely got a lot of good information. So you would be somebody that the spies would want to talk to, Ma. <laughs> I love you, baby. All right. All right. All right. Bye. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and that was Open Book. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, tell your friends and make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. While you're there, please leave us a rating or review. If you want to connect with me or chat more about the discussions, it's at Scaramucci on Twitter or Instagram. You can also text me at plus one nine one seven nine oh nine two nine nine six. I'd love to hear from you. I'll see you back here next week.